Good evening. This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship across ethnic, racial, and partisan lines. Tonight's program features mystery writer Gary Phillips on The New L.A. Noir. He reflects on Los Angeles as a sun-washed city of dreams and despair, whose plot is constantly unfolding in books and films and music of varying shades and notes of noir. Um, tonight's topic, as it were, is about L.A. and noir, and certainly about the new noir. But you can't talk about noir without talking about its roots, its antecedents. Uh, and with that in mind, I'm going to read a quick little passage. It was one of the mixed blocks over on Central Avenue, the blocks that are not yet all Negro. I had just come out of a three-chair barbershop with an agency thought a relief barber named Dimitros Aliidis might be working. It was a small matter. His wife said she was willing to spend a little money to have him come home. I never found him. But Mr. Aliides never paid me my money either. This is actually from Farewell, My Lovely, uh, written in 1940 by Raymond Chandler. The book, of course, is told from the point of view of his character, Philip Marlowe. And Marlowe is somewhat of an outsider in this part of Los Angeles. Uh, as Marlowe reflects, this is a part of L.A. that's starting to become all black. The subtext being that people like my dad, who came from a small Texas town, who in fact actually went east first and then eventually wound up west because of uh, opportunity, because of a job. And so like a lot of the black uh, folks who migrated to Los Angeles, that would change the complexity of Los Angeles as well as, of course, the sound of Los Angeles, particularly in the beginning toward the 30s and, and through the 40s, Central Avenue transforms in terms of music, in terms of sounds, in terms of its culture. I was surprised to see a white man walk into Joppy's bar. It was not just that he was white, but he wore an off-white linen suit and shirt with a Panama straw hat and bone shoes over flashing white silk socks. His skin was smooth and pale with just a few freckles. One lick of strawberry blonde hair escaped the band of his hat. He stopped in the doorway, filling it with his large frame and surveyed the room with his pale eyes. Now the color I'd seen in a man's eyes. When he looked at me, I felt a thrill of fear. But that went away quickly because I was used to white people by 1948. I had spent five years with white men and women from Africa to Italy, through Paris, and into the fatherland itself. I ate with them and slept with them, and I killed enough blue-eyed young men to know that they were just as afraid to die as I was. So begins Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress, written in 1990, but again set in 48, a kind of retroactive take on Los Angeles, a kind of looking backward but looking forward again. Um, that could very well be that same bar that Philip Marlowe stood outside of in the context of the story eight years before, but now there's a Central Avenue post-World War II, a Central Avenue that is in fact transformed from white establishments to uh, all black establishments. And of course then in The Devil in a Blue Dress, you get a sense of L.A. that is not the L.A. of Philip Marlowe, it's not the L.A. that's chronicled in uh, books from the 40s and the 50s, which generally speaking uh, portrayed white protagonists looking for other white folks. Uh, in this case, he's a black man who can only be assigned to this job or only get this job because in fact he has to move among the black community. Mystery novels afford a large palette, a large landscape 
upon which noir tales of hard-boiled come about. And it's interesting to note that what is called now the noir school or the neo-noir schools um, still exists. That continuum that has come from uh, the days of German Expressionism in the 20s, which is part of the root of what is called noir, and influenced a style of film or a kind of film. But it wasn't conscious at the beginning. In the 30s and the 40s, what emerged as, or what the French eventually called uh, the film noir school, were made by writers and directors who didn't have a budget, who shot on the cheap. Most films were black and white then, but they didn't have a lot of sets, they couldn't do big crowd scenes. So by necessity, they, they had to focus on individuals. They had to focus on the characters. They had to focus on what the story was about, uh, as opposed to the big epic sweep. Noir, by definition, then started to, to come about as things about the underworld, things about the undertow, or things about people and normal people sometimes caught up in extraordinary circumstances, or sometimes petty criminals who sought to be above their class, because the other sort of subtext to noir you'll find in films and in books uh, tends to be about uh, class and about how those who are in the lower class either strive to get out of that class through money, through uh, extraneous means, through criminal means, uh, or occasionally try to move above that class and try to get away in, in that regard. But the roots of noir, as they carry us forward now into what would be considered, I think, deindustrialized LA. So at that point, Los Angeles has already gone through this period of time in which we've had another explosion of immigrants who have come to Los Angeles not because of economic means, but have not been absorbed into the labor force and the labor pool, as people like my father were absorbed into industry, uh, skilled and semi-skilled work. At that point, there was two GM plants. There was one uh, in Southgate and one in Van Nuys. The one in Southgate had been closed. The one in Van Nuys was fought to keep that open even longer. All these sorts of businesses had disappeared, and these heavy industries were gone now. And therefore, you had in this post-industrial 1990s LA a different kind of milieu, a different kind of mix happening. And uh, recently in the LA Times, there was a front-page story about the Mara Salvatrucha, this gang which actually started not too far from here, MacArthur Park, who themselves are immigrants who can trace their roots back to the 1980s, particularly from El Salvador, who came here partly as refugees, partly to try to seek a different life. And then there's an interesting phenomenon where then you had some of these young men now being caught up in the gang culture, some of whom have been deported, some of whom have come back. Um, so in the context of this now, you start to see, particularly in this period of time, as a genre of the mystery novel starts to open up. Uh, heretofore uh, had been the purview of uh, men like uh, Mickey Spillane and those sorts who sort of wrote these kind of tales of the guy with the hat and the gat and the blonde. But when you talk about noir, you also certainly talk about music and jazz. And it's not a mistake or it's not just a happenstance that those two particular kinds of American forms have a great overlap. Jazz, as it were, coming out of the disaffected, the disenfranchised, the underclass, having its roots, of course, within uh, houses of ill repute, known to be frequented by those kinds of people, becomes a kind of soundtrack then to noir, and, and it's not a mistake then when you're in, in classic noir films, uh, even now in neo-noir films, uh, you hear uh, the saxophone, then there's certainly the, the guitar and all that, and uh, various jazz groups have been used to do soundtracks for various kinds of movies. Uh, I was thinking about this because it, this sort of comes to an interesting head in a film called The Conversation, I guess that was uh, done in the 60s, uh, not set in LA, it's set in San Francisco, but in the context of the film, Gene Hackman, his job is to uh, 
eavesdrop on people. His only relaxation is to play the saxophone. And actually, this is a trope that's been used several times now where you have the detective character or the investigator or the prior, the peeper, uh, also be a jazz drummer. There was actually a show in the 50s called Johnny Staccato about a, a man who was a detective who was also a jazz drummer. So the whole question of music kind of flowing in and out of the noir riffs, in that case, certainly the blues too is there as well. Now we start to see this opening up of who is practicing the form of noir, who's working in the genre, both in terms of uh, black writers, Latino writers, more women, Asian writers, etc. And in particular, I want to read a little passage here. This is from The Summer of the Big Bachi by Naomi Hirahara. It was an old-fashioned black and white photograph about wallet size. At first, Moss made no connection to the image, but then he began to focus more carefully. It was a stone bridge, the kind you often saw in Hiroshima before the war. This one had been near the train station, Moss remembered. Three boys in black school uniforms stood on different spots on the bridge. That's you. The Connie's manicured finger pointed to the middle boy in between the other two, taller and lean. Those other two, in fact, resembled each other, look-alikes, with strong noses, but one was born in California, like Moss, while the other was a native Hiroshima boy. Where'd you get this? That is not your concern. Well, then, I have no concern. Moss finally opened the front door and attempted to close it behind him, when the screen door fell down, almost knocking Nakani's glasses off his face. We can give you money for information, hissed Nakani, over, stepping over the screen door. Moss kept the door open a crack. Who's we? My associates and I. We are prepared to make you a generous offer. You'd be wasting money. I have no information. You were with him, weren't you? When the Picadoon fell, what happened to him? Where is he now? I don't know, no Joy Hanada. Don't come around here anymore, Nakani-san. That's nothing I can help you with. His chest pounding, Moss slammed the door shut. He waited to hear the hum of an engine and pulled back the curtain an inch to see the Lincoln Continental drive away. After a good five minutes, Moss took a deep breath and went back outside. In this book by uh, Naomi, Moss is a uh, somewhat stereotypical figure. He's a Japanese-American gardener at a time when, in fact, there almost are no more Japanese-American gardeners. It's set in 99. But like any noir tale, the main actor can't escape the past. In this case, Moss, who's a survivor of Hiroshima, cannot escape that. There are things that he won't deal with in his own mind, but there are also other sins from his past that now have come back to haunt him as an older man. Uh, and again, that's a sort of a familiar trope that you find in noir tales, where the past invariably comes back to haunt you uh, now in the future. In one of Walter Mosley's most recent books, Little Scarlet, which goes all the way from the 40s through the 90s, and you follow the character Easy Rawls as he actually ages naturally uh, in the context of the series. So... That's another kind of familiar trope that's used in noir, and you see that over and over again. But of course, as I said, noir is about forgetting the past, jettisoning your past, and hence why I think noir is such a significant subtext to life here in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, as we know, is often seen as the place where you go uh, where there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> it's the place you kind of wind up in. But it's also the place where you reinvent yourself. In fact. Uh, and the whole notion of just how actors changed their names, became something different, became new people, even among the rappers. Hip-hop, in its early stages, it was in fact certainly a reaction to uh, events that were happening at the time, particularly here in Los Angeles, for those of us who remember the wonderful, creative and colorful character, Daryl Gates, who in fact created the first SWAT team and who gave us 
such memorable projects as Operation Hammer. Does anybody remember Operation Hammer? You seem to remember toward the summer in 88, after a series of particularly violent incidents, and as a way to then crack down on crime, Gates then initiates uh, what becomes known as Operation Hammer. And I particularly remember this period because at that point we owned a small print shop right on 42nd and Vermont. And remember several nights where we'd be working late and, you know, you hear the helicopters buzzing around, you hear the cop cars running around, when in fact they were just pretty much randomly rounding up black and brown young men between 18 and 30, what have you. Uh, and at one point, even using the uh, sports arena as a kind of mass staging ground to uh, book and process these young men for real and often imagined crimes. And I recall in particular uh, the LA Weekly running this fantastic black and white photographs of you know, these arrests and, and the eerie lighting from the helicopters and, the, and using the lighting from the sports arena as if this sort of coup had happened in parts of Los Angeles, again sort of to assuage the fears and doubts of other parts of LA that in fact South Central was contained. But all of this then of course then becomes the stuff that fuels, at least in those days, a real legitimate reaction from the streets, not only among uh, some of the groups that, that I knew and my wife know and I'm sure other organizers out here know in terms of just sort of working around police abuse, uh, certainly the infamous PDID, the Public Disorder Intelligence Division of the LAPD, uh, PDID planted uh, cops among various community organizations. Uh, and then as we have Operation Hammer and, and various other actions by Daryl Gates, particularly if people remember uh, the, the battering ram that he instituted in terms of just plowing into people's houses. Uh, there's a famous incident where they use the battering ram to plow into houses and these kids are like sitting in the kitchen eating ice cream. And all of a sudden you look over and here's this battering ram. So you really can't get much more noir than that. <coughs> Then this sort of, of course, then fuels what becomes known as gangster rap. In those early days, uh, Easy e who was one of the founding members of NWA, who would pass on, Easy e uh, in the garage uh, of his folks, just set up this little recorder, and he recorded a song called Batteram. And it got no airplay. But certainly among kids in, in the hood, that became this hit. Uh, and from Batteram, then, then eventually when NWA forms, and they do... Um, their landmark album, uh, Straight Outta Compton. They become this sort of phenomenal hit that is emerging from this mix of both uh, sort of the militaristic actions of the cops, as well as now, as I said, sort of this post-deindustrialization when, in fact, jobs are drying up, more immigrants are coming, there's more of a stretch and a pull for resources that exist. All this then gets sort of reflected in this music, uh, and then certainly starts to show itself within the confines of, of the detective fiction, the noir fiction. A white boy with the funny left eye walked into the AC Deuce on a Monday football night. It was odd timing for a man about to work the stranger's magic as the club was usually packed on Mondays during the season and he was running the risk of being torn to pieces even before he could begin. But he was looking for headlines trying to earn a certain reputation for reckless defiance and mere survival had long ago been scratched from his list of personal priorities. Ideally, in fact, he was hoping to play before a full house one great writhing sea of black humanity that could stand witness to his power for years to come. But what he received for an audience instead was a handful of weary regulars who quite obviously had nowhere else to go. The Lions were hosting the Packers and combinations like that had a way of keeping people with any respect for the game away from giant screen TVs. So begins a passage from my boy Gar Haywood's book, Fear of the Dark. Uh, came out period in 1988, 1989, and again starts to reflect this kind of 
new aesthetic that you start to see within the detective fiction, within the realm of hard-boiled noir stories, so that these stories that are hinted at in Farewell, My Lovely, 40-some-odd years before, now, in fact, starts to emerge, starts to be shown and, and talked about within the confines. So now here we have sort of late 80s, early 90s, of this kind of new fiction that's building upon what has gone before. Uh, as we know, that the business about L.A. is reinventing yourself, uh, no matter who you might be, no matter what your education might be. Decades before, um, the LAPD, in fact, had these uh, bomb squads, and during the Depression, they would sometimes go down to judicious parts of the, of the border, not, not to stop illegal immigrants, but not the way they're perceived now, not undocumented workers as they are now, but in fact, Okies, in fact, you know, people from Iowa and people from Oklahoma, uh, because they were just crowding in too much, and they sort of beat up a few of these folks and kind of send a message to the others involved. And going a little bit more with the police, um, so now you have this kind of uh, polished image of the cops, and it's appropriate that it's Gates because at one point Gates had been the, the driver for William Parker and William Parker is, the, is sort of the infamous police chief portrayed particularly in uh, um, James Elroy's novel, both uh, L.A. Confidential as well as The Big Nowhere. But it's Parker who cleans up the image of the LAPD, who starts to professionalize the force uh, so that, for instance, he does actively recruit white officers with ads in papers in the Deep South, which of course in results are you know, breaks out into the Watts riots. So it's certainly appropriate, though, that under Parker that we then get Dragnet, the image of the cool, detached, almost robotic Joe Friday, the ultimate professional, the man who is unflappable, who always has a put-down, who always has a, a sarcastic comment, but never loses his temper, never maliciously beats a suspect, only beats him down with words, uh, and in fact uses his... his incredible intuitive mind to get confessions out of somebody in 10 minutes because that's usually the time left in the show. Um, but it is significant that, in fact, uh, Jack Webb, who, by the way, was an L.A. native, born in Bunker Hill, created Dragnet the way he did, um, clearly as a model, and it was you know, a propaganda tool, but to show that this was the new LAPD, that you had their patrol cars and their motorcycles, and they used investigative techniques, and they didn't use the rubber hose, and they you know, didn't put the phone book upside the suspect's head, but no, 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 that this was the new and refined LAPD. Then it's significant during the Watergate era, we get police story, and police story is created by a cop, Joseph Wamba a guy who knows whereof he speaks, a guy who had actually been a patrol man, who'd been out on the streets and had done arrests and all this sort of stuff. And so it is significant that during the Watergate era, we get this other LAPD portrayed. Cops who aren't corrupt, but cops who have flaws. Cops who get drunk and wake up and can't remember where their gun is. Cops who have affairs. Cops who do, in fact, have prejudices and, and display those prejudices out on the street. And so you sort of get within the, the portrayal in, in TV of this kind of loosening up, this kind of, you know, embarking of a new kind of cop. And that, of course, then opens up another kind of happening within, certainly within the literature of the day, and how cops are perceived and how they're portrayed. One of the interesting things I find about looking at L.A. and noir and this notion of reinventing ourselves is that with the happening of rap, and th at one point is a kind of reaction to the overreacting of the cops. I met Baby Boy a few days later at Eminem's Diner, Tennessee Home Cooking, at the juncture of King and Crenshaw. He sits propriety in a Naugahyde booth, 
laying his briefcase down beside him and tells me a little bit about himself and his dreams for in entertainment. He's 24 now and lives with his girlfriend, Marlene, and the couple's newborn daughter, Chanel, baby boy's second child. Their small apartment is in Culver City, a few miles to the west of here, where many of the film studios are based. Marlene pays the rent. She works as a secretary at Fox. Baby boy doesn't have a job. After Marlene has gone to work in the mornings, he gets in his old silver mercury cougar and rides back out to Wilton Place in King, where I'd met him. It's where he grew up. He calls it the hood or the dub, the W short for Wilton. It's where his people are. Marlene's family lives just around the corner. Baby boy hangs out. He hatches plans to break into the music business, and he smokes grass with Budman and his friends on the dub. On the dub, he says, peering over the menu. We barbecue maybe four or five times a week. You know what I'm saying? As Q-Dog, he once wrote a rap called Hood Life, which romanticizes the boyish indolence of his life here. Spending all the day walking back and forth to the store to get another blunt and two four O's. And I'm the only homie that will drink the O.E., but I'm down to put ends on a fifth of Hennessy. I'm going to kick back, relax, and chill on the W where the niggas show love and stay real. This is from Westside, Young Men in Hip Hop in L.A. by William Shaw. It's in fact a, uh, a book of essays about hip hop and how that sort of influenced uh, young men now growing up in Los Angeles in this period of the 90s where classrooms were just, you know, not enough room, not enough books. Teachers are, are not teaching because they can't teach because they don't have the resources to teach. Uh, and as the schools start to sort of break down, what do these young men look to? Where do these young men go? I'm somewhere thinking about the mid-90s now. Uh, the city is in this kind of throes of, uh, I guess it's just the start of what's going to eventually become this weird boom that we're in. Um, but L.A. is this kind of place where you have these weird, interesting separations so that on one hand we have a fair amount of millionaires in this town and yet one in four kids in this city still live in poverty. You have a housing crisis that started to creep in in the mid-90s. So it's going to be interesting to see as that kind of condition plays out what will be the the literature, the, the noir sensibility that emerges from that, uh, particularly in terms of detective and crime fiction, as it starts to change and make the literature different. Um, another part of noir that's always been there has been politics. Because, you know, politics is about people who are graspers, people who are schemers, people who uh, are cutting corners. And that's always been a hallmark of noir stories no better crystallized than in Chinatown, uh, sort of the ultimate uh, historical L.A. film about our founding through schemes and means. I got a segue. Here it is. Harold was on the 405 freeway in the South Bay curve when he looked in his rearview mirror and saw the Buick Riviera coming up behind him. It pulled even with him in the fast lane. He looked over and saw there were four of them, black hair slicked back, dago tees showing the tattoos on their muscled shoulders, gangbangers. What the hell did they want with him? He had them pull out his guns and start blasting. But no, they were smiling, smiling and nodding, checking out his car and liking what they saw, a Bahama Green 64 Chevy Impala SS with a 430 horse engine. The last of the muscle machines. The Buick's driver gave Harold thumbs up, put his foot down and disappeared in the traffic, glass packs rumbling. That's life in L.A., Harold thought, realizing all over again how bizarre this city was. So begins Lowrider, a car noir thriller by Philip Reed, appropriately set, I might add, in the mid-90s. Um, L.A. noir then, one about sort of the underclass and the undertow uh, as stories about people just trying to make it, people just trying to make ends meet, 
those people like Baby Boy who see their way out through uh, music parallel to decades before Lower East Side kids who saw their way out as boxers, those old movies with Cagney as the boxer. Or I remember one Cagney movie where he, where he goes back in the ring and he knows he's going to get blinded, but he has to go in the ring because his kid brother needs the operation. Now in these kind of what's called the urban books are ghetto lit, and you see the, somebody who's going to make it out, but they're going to make it out because they're going to turn around and help somebody else or help the kid brother or help their girlfriend or whatever that is, so that you have kind of these familiar tropes that have been around in these sort of crime tales and urban tales for a long time, you now are giving a, a kind of new sheen in the context of the 90s. Politics, of course, is never far from noir, and particularly uh, politics as is expressed on the street. As I said, you have a kind of street politics has always been there in the noir novel, in the noir film. As Los Angeles has become more multifaceted, and you start to see that better reflected in those novels, where film is still hard to get, films made of different enclaves and different ethnic groups. The mystery novel affords you a landscape uh, in which to do that, in which to portray the various facets of Los Angeles. All right, since I have to wrap up, I'm going to end on a happy note. <laughs> L.A. might very well be lurching toward a Blade Runnerville future, each ethnic group carving out its larger or smaller fiefdom. It might well make a lie of the theory of multiculturalism, American history having long since made a lie of the great melting pot. The city might indeed become a low-rent Blade Runner, too beat and too broke to pay for the special effects. But it could also be an example, the last possible chance for sanity in a world where the law of the pack, led by the rapaciousness of the big money boys who fed at the trough that Reagan and Bush slopped for them from the pickings of the poor, the working, and the middle class, had to be halted. Men like Maxfield today believed the salvation of Los Angeles lay in the will of the corporate patrician. Possibly that was part of the equation, but Monk was also convinced he resided with her everyday people, those folks like his sister working day to day under the onus of budget cuts and top-heavy bureaucracy, trying to do their job because they believed it made a difference. It had to. All right. That was Gary Phillips on the new L.A. Noir. The Los Angeles Public Library and Zocalo present this monthly lecture series. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. It is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo is made possible by Semper Law Group, Washington Mutual, and the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit ZocaloLA.org. Thank you for joining us.